From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. So when I talk about the three P, it is the people, the process, and the playbook. And it's in this sequence. The first thing, you got to get the right people. And it all starts with that. The right people for that company in that moment for that job. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Sometimes I'll meet someone, and having only spoken to them for a few minutes, I'll find myself saying, there's a depth to that person that really inspires me. Luca Lazaron is one of those people. He's the chief revenue officer at Sprinkler. And despite a phenomenal run at some of the great sales powerhouses, he's retained a level of humility and humanity that's rare. Luca's perspective on business and life is highly influenced by his family and some of the challenges that have brought them closer together. Those life experiences have allowed him to become the kind of inspirational leader who exerts a gravitational pull over great talent. Well, it turns out Luca wasn't born with an innate understanding of what it takes to inspire. On today's episode, he'll share a few of the speed bumps he hit on the road to the executive suite. Luca has also worked with a number of visionary CEO founders. He's developed deep insight into how they're wired and what makes them different from other kinds of CEOs. During our discussion, he'll talk about the mindset that CROs need to embrace if they expect to click with a founder. Let's jump into the discussion. Luca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's an honor to be on. Well, it's a wonderful privilege. There are so many great stories that you have to share. Let's actually go ahead and start off. I wanted to talk a little bit about Luca as a young person. I know that soccer was a big part of your life growing up. And I'd love for you to maybe share a little bit about what you were like out on the soccer field many years ago. <laughs> okay, well, if you are a kid in Italy, you know, by default, you love soccer, right? That, that's where it is, culture, football, the European version of football. And um, if you're a kid, uh, you dream to play with the number 10 on the back. The number 10, if you look at all the most famous player, right? Uh, Maradona, that just recently died, you know, Pelé, uh, Messi, they all play with the number 10. And uh, right now, you know, they play more, you know, in the forward role, but the number 10 is really kind of the star of, you know, the team and typically play also in the midfield. In the, and so you can actually kind of be the director of the team, right? And so you asked me how I was. I was very good technically and I was horrible as an athlete, right? Too skinny, not strong enough. But I was pretty good from the technical point of view. So I like to play. I really like to win, but I was not like uh, the best one, you know, from the athlete point of view. So I was trying to balance that with the technique. I was thinking I could kind of direct, you know, the team on the pitch. It was probably 
very clear in my mind. I don't think it was so clear in the coach mind, right? <laughs> of me getting to the pitch and trying to command the team in my own way. So it was kind of funny to see how, you know, sometimes I was messing up the entire team asking people to do certain things and the coach saying, no, you have a different strategy. And so I realized earlier on that I probably like to, you know, direct and, and, and more command the team at that time versus understanding what it takes, you know, to be able to coach and direct the team. But it was the early signal probably that there was something in the back of my mind or in my DNA that uh, I was competitive, I wanted to win, and uh, I probably realized I couldn't win alone, but uh, still did not realize how to win with the team. So I was kind of more commanding. And I made a couple of, you know, mess on this, right? So uh, but it was it was quite fun. And looking back, well, you know, you can realize there was already something probably of what I wanted to do in life. <laughs> I can relate to that story. I played American football in high school. I was fairly big when I started playing in high school, but I didn't grow after that. And the coach put me, I was the center. So that's the guy that hikes the ball. And and the center is typically one of the biggest people on the field. By my last year in high school, I was one of the smallest people on the field. And like you, I looked around and realized I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the fastest. My strategy for coping that was a guy named Dave Mays who played right next to me. And Dave was huge. He was about 250 pounds. He and I had a signal where if I knew that I couldn't block the person in front of me, I would give Dave this secret signal. Dave would block his guy and my guy simultaneously and we'd be able to complete the play. But I I actually think there's something about being self-aware enough to realize that you can't, you don't have the size or the speed, so you got to figure out some other way to play the game. And if you can learn that early in life, it actually has a huge impact on your ability to to succeed later in life. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Well, this idea that you are a natural leader, I think it's, it's not necessarily something you chose. It's just part of who you were. But certainly you learned over the years what true leadership was. If I were to go back in time and ask the teenage Luca, how would you define leadership? What would that teenager tell me? Oh, it was so bad from that point of view, right? It was more around, you know, commanding the other, right? And uh, uh, I think it's more the concept of being a boss than uh, than in the reality, earning the respect to be able to lead a team. Uh, so, and it's down to obviously the immaturity that you have at that age and on. But probably there were already the early signal of the passion, you know, for the teamwork and uh, achieving something together with the other. Again, in that case, it was clearly dictated by my inability to win by myself. <laughs> but uh, it was a, it was a good signal, let's put it in this way. But yeah, it was probably more around commanding than really leading. I do think that there, with respect to leadership, those that are natural leaders have an innate desire to lead. They have the courage to lead and perhaps go against the grain and do things that other people wouldn't think are, are conventional. I often, though, find that the skill that needs to be learned is the compassion, the humility, learning how to earn the respect of others. And that tends to come over time. I agree. I agree 100%. And you have to learn how to do the job you know, of the people that you lead, so it takes some time. You first have to go through that and learn that, being able to do that, and then be able to lead the team, you know, on the 
that are able to do that. I think we talk, you know, preparing for this about my first experience out of college, right? The first full-time job that I did. I was hired by a company, very good company, still in business, very good business, a German company that delivered frozen food door to door called Go Frost. And uh, I answered to this advertising for young manager. I was doing, you know, uh, I took a degree exactly on that, on uh, economy, business administration and management. So I was able to get my first full-time job. I always worked during college, right? I paid my studies and I know. But I got this, uh, uh, this job to manage a branch with 40 people. And uh, that was an amazing experience because to prepare me for the job, they put me through, you know, for three months, uh, basically a, a training on the job in which I was performing every position on the branch. The people that were selling, driving the truck and delivering the frozen food door to door, the people that was actually loading the, the small trucks in the morning, the accountant in the branch, the job trainer, people actually managing the goods, you know, on the fridge itself. It's a, it was a great experience on learning how you have to master, you know, every aspect of the business and the position if you want to lead that team. And it was so hard, Justin, so incredibly hard, I can tell you. I was waking up at 5.30 in the morning, going to bed at, you know, half past midnight. And uh, but it was a phenomenal experience. So you wanted to be the boss. That was your aspiration. Yeah, <laughs> you got yeah. what you asked for and suddenly realized maybe being the boss isn't quite as exciting as I expected. No, no. I think John McMahon once told me, you wanted a bike, now you have to ride a bike, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a way of saying, so be careful what you ask for. <laughs> So you're you're building a successful career. You're on the fast track of frozen food delivery. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good company. Be careful. It's a very good company. They're still around. So we don't want to we don't want to knock frozen food. I eat a lot of my, a lot of it myself. But yeah. at some point, you realize that frozen food is probably not in your future. How in yeah. the world did you make it from frozen food into tech? I was telling you, I was working at for a for a a year basically, uh, working 18 hours a day, phenomenal experience. Don't make too much money. That's a, not an industry that overpay or that you have a lot of upside. And I got a couple of friends in the city where I live that I still have an house on in Padua that start working for these US software companies. And uh, basically, we meet each other on a Saturday night. And out for a pizza, I'm kind of destroyed by my week working that way. And they show up, you know, and I show up with a very cheap car. They show up with a brand new Audi that they got is a company car. And they start talking about, you know, they're going to go to Boston for this training and how amazing is this company. So, and they start saying, you got to come, you know, enjoy us, right? You, you want a career. This is a great opportunity. You know, I gave the CV. This friend of mine gave it to the boss, uh, the local boss. The local boss looked at the CV and said, this guy is selling frozen food. Are you stupid? And he basically trashed my CV. That's it. So that was technically the end of my opportunity in software. Week after, this is really the true story. Another friend of mine is at dinner with the second line manager, basically the boss of the manager that trashed my CV. 
And this boss, the second line manager, is recruiting at that dinner, right? He's asking, you know, we need to get people that are coachable and driven. And they say, well, I got this friend of mine that works like crazy. He would love this. And they gave my name. So the second line manager give it back to the same person that trashed my CV the week before and say, hey, why don't you check this guy? So then <laughs> and I still know who he is, that I eventually took his job after a year, said, well, I'm going to have to talk to this guy. It's a waste of time. So that's how we started. And then it was the end of the quarter for them. They put me through four interviews, like in 10 days. I was barely speaking English at that time. You may say, Justin, that I still barely speak English. You're right. I, I, I say that I speak in macaroni English. And, um, and so basically they went through, you know, we went through the interview process. I still remember it was Q4. And I had to do the last interview in English with the American leader for Europe that was supposed to come back. So they were trying to figure out to put me on a plane, go to London, meet the guy, interview before he was jumping on the plane back to Boston. And uh, long story short, uh, the days did not match. So we scheduled a call while he was at the Heathrow airport. Uh, and I was panicking just there because I was really putting together some sentences and quotes, you know, trying to explain myself if there was anything special in the other job. So I got, you know, three pages prepared. The call lasted five minutes because the guy said, listen, Luca, I got to jump on a plane. They all say that you're smart. You get the job. I go back and see my family for Christmas. You know, let's hope it's going to work out. That was really the last interview in that case. And you can see that sometimes there is light in the right in our life. And uh, I was very lucky, lucky on that one. I don't want to skip over the irony here. The first time someone in Texas, your so I'm talking to the chief revenue officer of Sprinkler. The first time somebody sees your resume, they say, there's no way I'm going to hire this guy. And they throw it in the trash can. What does that tell you about the way that we think about conventional hiring and the opportunities that we miss because we're just looking for the right logos on the resume? Oh, Justin, you're so right. This is funny. I was having, we literally, we had a call last week uh, in Springfield with my recruiting team where we are hiring like crazy in this period. And I was actually discussing this, how the CV, you know, do not tell the truth anymore. Not that they do not tell the truth, not that they lie, but it's not enough, right? That logo doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Uh, and how we have to find way, most of the time, through the network, uh, back channeling. And I was explaining also identifying cluster of people that you can trust and that they can actually be the reference uh, to figure out if that guy selling frozen food, managing a branch of frozen food, actually had the fundamental characteristic, you know, to be able to do the job or learn to do the job, right? The will, the greed, the coachability, the adaptability to do that job. So it is so important nowadays, and it is so much more difficult because, you know, you can get, uh, you know, confused by the great CV of the person being in the right places, but sometimes just being a passenger and not the driver in those mm. places. So uh, you're spot on. It is challenging. It requires, you know, you, you have to talk to the people. You have to talk to the people. You have to cross-check. You have to have a network that can reference as much as possible. As I speak with more and more sales leaders, 
again and again, the common characteristic that comes through in a successful sales leader, their ability to spot talent. And the more incisive they are being able to size someone up and see what nobody else sees, the greater the competitive advantage they have. It's more important than process. It's more important than who you've worked for in the past. That ability, that x-ray vision makes the difference. But I agree 100%. I always say to my leadership team that once you build a little bit of experience, sure, you got to check this. You got to check the right corner. But listen to your gut also. Mm -hmm. Listen to your gut. You know, when you talk to a person, how do you feel, right? Do you feel that there is empathy, there is a connection, there is an ability, there is a... You can feel that you can start building a trust uh, between, because this is what, you know, the customer will think about uh, as well. So, not 100%. What are some of the other characteristics that you look for in, a, in an account rep? Inherent qualities that you must have versus the things you feel you can train. There are stuff that obviously you cannot give to anybody, right? Uh, one is, sometimes we call it will, Great, uh, you know, the, 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 the will to do something special in your life, right? Sometimes that is dictated by how you grow up. If you have to demonstrate something to your family, to the world, or just your ambition, right? To change the trajectory of your family, your peers. So there must be something, because we got to remember, right? That we, and probably most of the people that will listen to this podcast, we are probably in the top 5% of the population in terms of opportunity that working in tech and in software, we can have professionally, financially, you know, building relationships. And so this serves to have people that has the ambition to do something special in their life, whatever that can be. So that, and so you got to find those characteristics. It's also around finding people that they will not let anybody outwork them more commitment to the work and the job than you so that is one thing then we gotta be honest it's also the the brain the clock right uh, we work in a, in a in a space that evolves at the speed of light and you have to keep adapting right and adapting learning the product the market your customers adapting what they need and so the ability to do that quickly and to connect the dots uh, is very important. And on this, I always look for something just in that I appreciate. Sometimes a great leading indicator for that is the curiosity. Because the curiosity is what, you know, will make, you know, that, that uh, lady or that man that working says to make the next question and the next question. And do not accept superficial answer, right? And go deeper so that then it can start really adding value and figuring out if we can help that prospect or that customer. I love, you know, people that is curious and that will always come back with another one. You remember there was a, a series, and probably you and I are old enough to remember that, it was uh, um, Colombo, uh, was the policeman, right? Uh, yep. What was it? Lieutenant, no, Inspector Colombo, I don't know what, what was the name in, in, in English, but uh, he was always coming back with, I'm sorry, I have another question. I have another question. You got to get that level of curiosity. Two, a, a couple of great ideas there, just the level of curiosity of the questions. I also really like the point you made about wanting to do something special. 
I, ha- I was having a conversation with Jim Steele the other day. He's the president over at Salesforce. And Jim told me about, as a kid, he had a paper route. And he said, you know, I wasn't satisfied to just have a paper route. So what I started to do is recruit all the kids in the neighborhood. And I created an entire organization of paper delivery boys. I was at the top of the pyramid and I mobilized them and organized them. And we built this huge business. And he said, I actually became the family banker because I was bringing in so much cash. But you think about as a kid, nobody told him to do that. Nobody explained how to do it. He was just wired to want to do something differently, to do something special. And that quality followed him through his career. And you see that again and again in, in people that are able to accomplish great things in life. That reminds me. So to buy my first car, I was around 20 years old, right? And at that time during college, I was paying my studies, selling part-time advertising for a local radio and TV station. And they also own some uh, dancing, you know, places, right? Discotheques. One year, a friend of mine said, hey, you keep working with them. You're making some money. That's good. But why don't we organize a New Year's Eve party ourselves? And I said, okay, that's a smart idea. So it's going to have to be big. I want to make sure we make a lot of money. I want to buy a car. And then I put together a network in which basically we identified the target should have been, you know, like student from the high school that they were going to a very secure place, like an arena, you know, with all the protection. And I, I created a network with one student for every high school in the area. So there were 40 kids that was basically our PR people there, and they were selling the tickets. So long story short, we did 3,000. We built a network that I'm still in touch with most of them after 30 plus years. And I think it's down to the same story before, right? You got to think big. Sometimes you just have to think big. Yeah, I love that. Great story. Luca, let's go ahead and transition to your time at Cisco. You were responsible for the advanced technology group. There was some channel involved in that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that role and some of the things that you learned. Yeah, thank you. Uh, That was a phenomenal experience. I got to Cisco through an acquisition. At that time, Cisco was acquiring a company a month, basically every 30 days. And um, and then I was put together, put in a group of what they call advanced technology group at that time. That was the first IP telephony that now is normal in any place, but in 99 and 2000 was the first time that IP telephony was sold. So voice over IP was taking over. And the IP contact center, that was the company that I was coming from. And what I learned in Cisco was that while in PTC and the previous experience, I learned the direct sales model. I learned that there was another way, actually, to go to market. And the channel in Cisco historically has been a phenomenal machine. The marketing, the channel opened my mind on what is possible to create and how you can scale business through partnership. In the case of Cisco, then it was very articulated because you have different tiers of partners. You could have the reseller. The VAR, you could have system integrator, you know, you went from the local distributor to the local reseller to the Accenture of the world. At that time, it was not Accenture, it was Anderson. But uh, it was uh, a great experience, first because at a, it was at the EMEA level, so I had the opportunity to learn from the past at that time. And I still have a relationship with the, the boss that I had at that time was Mike Hensley, he was a Canadian, you know, that was working with me there. And, uh, and Chris Dedico, that is still in Cisco, I think, running there. 
And then I was lucky enough to have a number of opportunities to work also directly with John Chambers, the CEO. So I learned that there was different way to go to market, uh, how you have to cultivate that. Uh, Cisco was phenomenal on certification of the resources, uh, putting together also plan on the university. So creating a culture for the product, creating an ecosystem, certifying the resources, it was really multiplying your forces to go to market. With so many channels, there's often an issue that companies run into a channel conflict. Who gets credit, which channel you use, when you use them. What are your thoughts related to how to orchestrate multiple channels and how to avoid channel conflict? It's around the choice on how you divide the territory and segment that basically the territory, the account, both in terms of segmenting from the let's say, just to simplify, large enterprise to SMB to consumer and the geography. And, uh, and I think what I found with uh, even outside Cisco more successful is probably not having thousands of partners, the sufficient number of partners to cover both the different size of customer you can go after and the different geographies. So creating a minimum competition, but not actually kind of inflating the market with partners because you know then you always create this kind of conflict and by the way at the end will actually reduce the margin of everybody that makes a lot of sense thinking strategically not trying to have overlap but having clear swim lanes yeah. so that you've got a specific partner or a specific channel assigned to each of the different swim lanes yeah. in our case for example nowadays in sprinkle what we have we have different kind of partners that go from technology partners that we integrate and we are complementary and they can suggest us, even if they don't resell Sprinkle, but we help each other and we complement the solution to agencies that uh, they work more on the advertising piece, but uh, they want to have a technology that back this up. The large system integrator, the Accenture and the Deloitte of the world, that actually they drive the digital transformation process. So they want to have pieces of technology and platform like our. So this is a good example of having different kind of partner category that complement you so that a customer can actually come to us and find all the right partners to make happen that digital transformation in our case, in other companies is, is something similar probably, but you know, and that they, you can provide them an ecosystem to be able to actually complete the solution and complete everything they need. While you were at Cisco, you had an opportunity to work with John Chambers, the CEO of Cisco. He's a legendary figure on his own. What did you learn from John? Well, first, I am lucky to nowadays still, you know, spend significant amount of time with him because he's an investor in the company I work and he sit on the board and he still call himself a sales guy. So I love when he calls me and he start asking, hey, sales guy to sales guy, how is the number? And he's actually really qualifying the forex at that stage. But uh, I mean, John is a legend for a few very simple reasons. You know, he brought uh, Cisco from $70 million revenue to $40 billion. $70 million to $40 billion. Can you imagine what it takes and what a journey, what changes you have to go through? I don't remember the number of acquisitions that he did. I think over 100 
and the growth of the number of employees, the ups and downs, because in all of this, you had you know, ter- terrible crisis uh, that you have to overcome. So I think uh, there are a number of stuff that I learned from John. First, as you know, it's not a secret. Uh, uh, John uh, has been diagnosed with dyslexia when he was, I think, nine or 10 years old. And uh, if you think of what he achieved, you know, being dyslexic, and he's such an example how you can overcome disability, uh, because he always has to be better prepared than anybody. And this is what I, why I, I really admire John, right? When we do a board meeting, he's always showing up with a folder and he studied every single slide and every single number before the board meeting, better than anybody I've ever seen, because, you know, he can do that at the moment. So I learned that uh, whatever meeting you are getting into, you better be prepared. And then in his case, to me, it's amazing how he moved from, he's the personal advisor of Macron, president of France, he's the personal advisor of Modi in India and many other. And he can move to actually to that, to a CNBC interview and to a call with me. And clearly I'm not at that level of bad people, but he's always aligning to that. So... Uh, and then he's, uh, there's something special around him, around the integrity and the value that he built and the network, the connection that he built over the years that, uh, that I really admire. That point about dyslexia landed with me. I've actually got dyslexia as well. I didn't know that as a kid. My parents never pulled me aside and said, hey, there's something you should know about yourself. So I just kind of plowed through. School was hard. But... Then I got to college and I loved literature. So I started to study English literature, but I was dyslexic. So it took me like five times as long to read these books (laughs) as it did anybody else. And again, I just assumed that everybody spent that amount of time reading books. I'll tell you though, Luca, what what came out of that for me was just an ethic that you got to work hard. And whether or not you you like it or not, you have the 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 hand of cards that life dealt you and and you learn how to deal with it. I think John is a wonderful example of someone who took one of the challenges of life and turned it into a strength. And that's a real inspiration to me. Me too. So you also had an opportunity to work at BMC, another phenomenal company. I think that's probably where you really solidified your sales philosophy. And I've heard you talk a little bit about the three P's. I love the idea of, of three P's. Can you talk about what the three P's are and how they fit into the sales process? Yes. So I got into BMC through the Blay Logic acquisition, right? I joined Blay Logic back in 2004 with IPO, and then BMC took us over. And then actually, BMC had a plan to use what we were doing on the sales team in Blay Logic that they discovered during the due diligence. And they wanted to apply that to the entire company. So then I became the uh, GM for me, and then I took, uh, after McMahon decided to retire, right? Uh, he, and uh, he mentored me and he put me head on worldwide sales. In that case, uh, the choice that Bob Beecham, the at the time CEO of, of BMC, and I still have to thank him for this, was he wanted to actually transform the BMC sales organization in the way we were working. And it was a massive, you know, change because you can you, we, you talk about the company in our case of a few hundred people versus company of five six thousand people, 
uh, doing a point one point seven billion when we get in two point two when I get out or something like that. And you have to have a, a, a framework to be able to get in and transform, like in the same way you build a, a new company. So when I talk about the three P, is the people, the process, and the playbook. And it's in this sequence. The first thing, you got to get the right people. And it all starts with that, right? You got to get the right people. It, and when I see the, mean the right people, I mean the right people for that company in that moment for that job. So it could be very different depending on the company you are, who you're selling to, if it is a product, if it is a platform, you know, what it is in that case. So the first thing was assessing, you know, the organization, the people, figuring out the idea profile, and then coaching the people that was on board, the one that love, you know, the new way of working that we were putting in place, and then hiring also additional people that were speaking that. So first, you got to get the right people. Then you have to give them a process. You have to give them something that, you know, that if they put all their effort into it, it's going to work. And uh, identifying early in sales, you know, a defined sales process with the different steps and stages with gates is so important because it gives you guardrail where to move, where to put your talent into it, but you don't have to reinvent it every time. And when you scale an organization, when you're talking about, you know, $2 billion revenue company, you need that because otherwise there's no way to control the business. So identifying the right process, it's important. And by process, I mean the sales process and also the qualification methodology. There are two different things, right? A number of us that came from the PPC school, Blade, as you will see with me, we talk about MedPIC or MedPIC, but that is a qualification methodology. We should not confuse it with the sales process. And you need the two things coming together. The third one is a playbook. You talk about American football earlier on, right? That you played American football. And there is the book of the plays, typically. The quarterback, you know, called the play on the line of scrimmage. And each and every member of the team knows what they have to do. To block, to do just three yards on the right or, or run or, you know, any player knows what to do when we call a certain play. You need to have a playbook, a book of the plays, you know, for what you do. And you need to have everyone audible ready. Audible ready in terms of knowing the product, the customer. And it takes a lot of time developing the people, investing on them, training. So the people, the process, and the playbook help also the entire organization to understand why we're asking them to do something. Is this part of the process to be more effective? Is this part of being audible ready for the playbook? That notion of having a playbook and having people who are audible ready is a powerful one. I think it naturally makes sense to people. The difference, though, in my experience is those that are really willing to put in the work, first of all, to define it, but secondly, to make sure that every single player that you put on the field has mastered it. There's actually a great story, Vince Lombardi, Lombardi, great American football coach, first practice of the season, he'd take everyone out onto the football field and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football field. This is where we need to get the ball to score. And they would hand them the ball and he'd say, this is a football. These are people that have been playing football all their lives. But to him, the fundamentals were so important that he wanted to make sure that everybody had the same foundation to start with and that he would build on that. And at the end of the day, that's why he's one of the most winning winning coaches in the history of the game. 
But there is a reason if now they end over the Vince Lombardi trophy, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you gather just a tremendous wealth of experience, big companies, small companies. You then moved on, started a consulting firm. I'm intrigued about this portion of your career, though, because it brought you in direct contact with CEO founders. And I'd love to get your insights related to what it means to be a chief revenue officer working for a CEO founder. Yeah. So that experience was when I decided, you know, I had to take a break for the family. And um, a couple of VC that I've worked with in the past, that they were finding company that uh, I was part of, they asked me if I could work part-time on this. And, uh, and uh, because I couldn't work full-time for a year. And I actually, then I was not thinking at the beginning about that. I was only thinking to take a break. And instead, you know, that started and I really enjoyed it because I was basically asked to talk to the, their portfolio CEO and go to market, especially on the international side. Most of the time, startup, when they scale, they really struggle to put the right team in place or where to focus in which countries, in which way and on and on. Uh, so I had a phenomenal opportunity to meet with a number of CEOs, some of them extremely successful. And uh, I started to appreciate uh, how, you know, they are very different than the way I am or the way any probably CRO or sales leader is, right? And the first, in a way, advice I can give to my peers doing my job or in general sales leadership, if you work with a founder CEO, just respect her or respect him. Because imagine how brave you have to be to have an idea, decide to put a company, you know, to put together a company that was not there anymore. It means to have a vision and have a vision to, you know, go somewhere with that, put all your effort, decide to hire people around that. So what I learned is that uh, they are wired differently than me. I'll give you the example. My job is all about, you know, building an organization, building a pipeline, making sure the customer is successful. And what I do every day, I try to see what can go wrong and manage that, right? And overcome those problems. Well, let me tell you, founder CEO think exactly in the opposite way. They don't look at the challenges. They only look at the opportunity and the vision of where they want to be in 10 years. So they know that there are all these challenges, but they by default, they're not going to worry too much about the day-to-day -day challenge. That's why they hire people like me or head of marketing and a COO, because they have to remain focused on their vision and how to get there and be, you know, undomable, you know, to get there, you know, not accepting defeat. So there is always this kind of tension because you try to apply your logic to them. It, it can't work this way. So I learned, actually, and I literally have some points, right, that, that uh, I learned over the, year, over the years that you have to accept that founder CEO are wired differently than you, number one. Number two, you got to understand their values because they're building a company around those values. It's like their professional family. And either you align to those values or it's better not to work together because it would be unfair to ask a founder CEO to change their values. The other thing is, you have to understand the culture of the company they want, what they're thinking, the values one thing, and then the culture that come out of it, right? And if you want to be part of that, then contribute to it. That doesn't mean saying yes, is 
bringing your values into this and and debating, but you gotta understand, you know, the culture that you know founder CEO wants on this, and and add your voice into this, you know, make your point uh, because in this way this will evolve, but not in terms of fighting, just being complementary to it. And then I think that there are the last two things I I always look at is you have to be able to build an intimate relationship with the founder CEO and know each other well and the executive team that she is building, you know, that you are part. You cannot fight with your peers. I made that mistake early in my career and head of sales most of the time fight against the head of marketing or fight against the CFO. That doesn't work. It doesn't last, right? So you have to find a way to respect and to work with your peers because then you create a culture that will actually permeate the entire organization. And there's going to be way more collaboration between the functions. Luca, the things that you shared make sense. Do you have a specific example? Well, I, I have more than one. I can tell you the last one, right? Because I work in this company called Sprinkle. The CEO is still the founder CEO, Raji Thomas. And I got to know Raji, actually. I joined Sprinkle full-time three, three years ago, three years and three months ago. But I got to meet Raji when I was doing, you know, the consulting uh, in, back in 2013. And uh, I was amazed meeting this guy in New York uh, that I never met before. The energy, the vision that he had. He was talking about stuff. I didn't understand anything about what he was saying because I didn't know the space, right? And I could see, you know, the, the vision and how he was undomable, right? He, he knew that, you know, he was building a company for several years after. So when I got back in touch with him in 2017, everything that he told me four years earlier was turning into reality. Even if, you know, they were going through some issues, otherwise they would not need someone like me to come in and help. But uh, that was a great, that is a great example of someone that has a vision that would overcome any, you know, near-death experience that the company had over the years. There was nothing that uh, would have ever and will ever stop Raji, right? In building, you know, the best software, most loved enterprise software company in the planet, like he wants to do. Nothing. That is, uh, that is to me, is inspiring and is a great example. I've had the opportunity to work at large companies. I've been at startups. What you're saying definitely resonates. I've often likened working at a startup to getting into a small boat with a very small group of people. You have a decision to make, and the decision is whether or not to get into the boat. But once you are in the boat, you have made your decision, <laughs> and yes. you can't get out of the boat without much pain. And the person that's in charge of the boat is the CEO, and they're going to charge into the biggest waves and explore the most uncharted waters out there. And if your aspiration is to have a leisurely sail through known places, you got into the wrong boat. I think that one of the biggest mistakes people make is they misunderstand what they're signing up for. But I love your point about the fact that inherent in a startup, there's risk, there's huge opportunity, but there are uncertainties. And it is the way that a CEO is wired that draws them to that. And if you're uncomfortable with that, if you can't deal in that kind of a circumstance, it's probably best that you just don't get into that boat. I agree. That's why it's so important to qualify 
those values, you know, the, that vision, you know, earlier on. You also mentioned a few minutes ago your family and making some decisions related to your career that put your family first in terms of the things that you needed to do on the home front. You've got a little bit of a unique situation. Can you share a little bit more about your family and how that sh shaped your perspective on life? Sure, sure. I have a family of girls. You know? I have a wife and two daughters. I have a dog that is a female, right? So... And uh, I have a wonderful wife. We are together since 33 years. I have two daughters, and one is turning 19 in a couple of months. So she's at college. Fantastic. I love her. And I have another fantastic daughter, but she's a very special one, right? Because unfortunately, she's 16, but she has severe disabilities since she was born. For, and those kind of disabilities disability that require 24-7 support. And through the years, actually now the situation, thanks to a magi magic place in Assisi, the Institute of Seraphico that take care of the you know, disability of kids like Georgia, she's getting, you know, the situation is more manageable, right? Uh, but uh, when one of your kids, right, uh, do not talk, is on a wheelchair, right? Uh, and uh, now actually we can hug her and we, you know, we, we have a relationship that uh, uh, required that support for life. And you know that she's not going to be able to do what the other kids are doing, but in a severe way. It teaches you some lesson on what is important in life and not, right? And, and put everything into perspective. Not that, you know, everyday problems are not important, uh, but uh, they are solvable. You can affect everyday problem. It doesn't matter if it is about working more or asking for help, but there are things you can't solve. And then in the case of my daughter, right, we're happy when we can see her smiling or she's quiet and we enjoy very little things. And those things actually enrich our life more than anything else. So you learn that there are priorities in life. There are things you can solve. There are unnecessary drama that sometimes we live in our companies, right? You probably experienced that as well. And, um, and I think that helped me also remaining grounded because sometimes you may think that because you achieve a little bit in life, uh, you are, you know, you're better than anybody, not even close to it. But uh, no, I love, I, I, and I love my daughters in, in an incredible way. And 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 in in this that obviously is not an easy situation, but uh, we've been incredibly lucky. We got to know this place, uh, the Seraphico Institute in Assisi. Uh, Assisi, if you know, is a place in Italy called the uh, City of Peace, uh, where you can find different religion. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, but you know, because it's famous for San Francesco. But uh, the spirit of the people that live there, that work there. Uh, it's uh, it's incredible. So I think uh, you got to see the positive in everything that happened, put it in this way. In a previous conversation, you had mentioned that one of the gifts that that institution gave you was the opportunity to just hug your daughter. And that yeah. at one point, that wasn't even something that you could yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, because you know my daughter, like many other with severe disabilities, she has epilepsy and some other. She also had some autistic behavior, so she was really refusing also the contact. 
And um, what uh, the, the incredible love and support that they give there, she basically learned over the years, like with specific therapies, uh, and she accepted this, this uh, contact that she was accept not accepting before. So right now I can hold her, I can, you know, take her from the wheelchair and put her on the couch with me. And uh, so, yeah, those very small things that we consider it like uh, normal or as a given, right, uh, in, uh, in most of our life, uh, for us is a joy. A wonderful gift that they gave to you. You've also been able to give back a little bit to the Instituto Serapico Serifico as well. Can you talk a little bit about your efforts? No, it's uh, I'm doing so little for this, not that much. But what I'm doing, I'm just trying to get people involved and get to know it because it's not only around the money and raising money and some charity event that we do with some friends. But is getting people involved on how special is this place and how, you know, so I got friends that we annoyed that came and visited. And uh, actually, a number of people that work in tech that they came there. And every company I work uh, over the last few years, they actually get to know it and support it with me. And I think that uh, for anybody, if you're going to be one day in a city in Umbria, knock on the door, visit the place, because as difficult as they are, the situation that they treat every day, you're going to get out with joy and feeling better. I can tell you, it's going to give you energy. It's not going to make you sad at all. I can't help but connect a story you told earlier in the discussion, staging this 3,000 person dance party in a stadium somewhere. <laughs> and what you're doing now where you are bringing together a group of people to support a wonderful cause. It seems like the same skills that you used in the first occasion are coming to bear in the second occasion, but it's a very different cause that you're now fighting for. I don't know, you, maybe you're right, but hopefully that helps more in this case. It's more, you know, it's more useful. As you think about the arc of your career, going back to those days when you were on the soccer field versus today, what have you learned about leadership in that interim time period? A lot, because with all the mistakes I did, I learned a lot. Now, I learned, uh, and, and, and actually, I, I try to coach um, everyone that work, we work together. If you decide to be in leadership, so nobody, you know, force you to be on it, right? It's a choice. It's like, uh, it's in a way, it's like having a family. That is your professional family. If you decide to leave, you're going to have a group of people that actually put their career in your hands. So if you decide to leave, you have to have a passion for that. You have to have a passion for coaching, for developing people, for making sure they have better chances to be successful. So what I learned, and I try, I always try to simplify as much as possible the messages, especially because as you can hear from my English, I have to simplify, you know, as much as I can. But uh, the way I define leadership is, is the ability to inspire. First of all, you don't want to work for someone that do not inspire you, Justin, right? It would be boring, right? But it's not about just someone charismatic that will cheer you up. Inspiration is making you feel part of something. 
why you are you working so hard? Why you ask, are doing this? That you're part of something, of a vision, of a mission, right? Of a journey together. So the inspiration is making sure everybody understands you are on that boat together, right? So the ability to inspire is very important. The second, but it's not enough. Second point, you have to be able to coach. You have to have a fundamental passion for coaching. I truly believe that what we do, especially in sales leadership, in tech, is the closest things to professional coaching. Very close. And so how we measure the results, how we practice, how we have to keep getting better. So the ability to inspire, number one, and the ability to coach on a daily basis, taking any opportunity, not just the development session, but any sales course you do with your team, you know, how you prep, how you deliver, follow up. When you get out of a meeting, you know, with uh, your team, not immediately jump on your phone, but debrief that, see the lesson learned from it. You gotta have a passion for coaching. Then, and only then, you earn the right to inspire. So inspire, coach, and inspire. And you have to inspire because you have to make sure that things happen. Now, most of the time, what I call manager, right, versus leaders, they start from the inspection. And this is where you create the frustration or what people, when people complain about micromanagement or Excel spreadsheet management. And, uh, and I really think that when you are able to do these three things in sequence, inspire, coach, and only then inspect, then you can actually build a phenomenal team. People can grow. Hopefully they can take bigger job in your organization or outside your organization. And that ultimately, if you are in leadership, that's what you want. You want to see your people being successful because your success will not depend on you anymore. It depends on the people that work with you. Those are some wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing them. I'll end with one more question. It's the question I always end with. As you look back over your life, what is the one thing you feel that's made the biggest difference? <laughs> that's a big question, Justin. <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I think that uh, I really, really, I am enjoying this journey. I'm really enjoying this journey. And no, no matter when we have the bad days, I realize how lucky I am, right, to work with some of the smarter people on the planet and that really in our space and that happened to me over the last 25 years i have a passion for what i do right putting together a team growing the team and i think uh, enjoying this piece made the difference for me and then it's probably the dream of leaving a little bit of legacy and just a little bit uh, leaving something behind uh, i think it's a great driver Luca, thank you so much. Justin, it was a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.